Melody. As a creative musician, you're either born with it or not. Or maybe everybody is born with it, but some choose to suppress it. Why would anyone do that? Stay tuned for part one of this two-part episode, The End of Melody. First this. Hey, it's Peter Saltzman. If you love improvisations on the ledge, please be so kind as to spread the word, give it five stars and a great review. And to keep up to date with all of my activities, including this podcast, new albums, performances, and music education, be sure to visit my website at petersaltzman.com. Enjoy the show. I have this friend in Vienna. Well, technically, I've never met him, like most of my friends, online somewhere. This one, whose name is Mache Heller, hails from Vienna. He's a composer, pianist like me, improviser. And we met on LinkedIn. Maybe a year ago, Mache responded to one of my posts about this podcast, an episode, and I believe it was the first minimalism episode called A Minimal Take on Minimalism. And he really complimented me on it and loved some of the ideas I talked about. He's one of the reasons I decided to do the next installment of the minimalism theme which was two episodes ago, the one called Maximal Minimalism, where I took on Philip Glass and won. Anyway, Mache and I have been communicating via LinkedIn over the course of the year occasionally. He uh, has actually told me when I've gone off the rails, which is nice. Somebody actually has both the courage and just the honesty to say, well, this wasn't a great episode. And gives me a, a good reason, not just says what's wrong with it. But I asked him to take a listen to that most recent minimalism episode. And he wrote me a very long note, not tediously long, a very interesting note. And I'm going to be reading parts of what he said throughout this episode because it really provoked some thought regarding my initial comments about minimalism, and he took it a little further, actually, and inspired this episode, in fact, called The End of Melody. So let me start reading some of what he said. Mache writes, I mostly liked the aspect of the loss of melody in minimal music. It was interesting to hear from your point of view. You also described very precisely the origin of minimalism as a U.S. reaction against the European hyper-intellectualism in the form of serial music after 1950. However, Philip Glass composes for me a kind of cheap music for everyone, playing broken triads all the time in every composition. What Glass literally does is just disgusting. The man is incredibly untalented. I prefer Steve Reich because he created this genre, and he is the one for me as well as a lot of musicologists from here, the true father of U.S. minimalism. Music by Philip Glass is fake. And this is not only my opinion here. I think we still have problems with the U.S. contemporary music. By the way, and this is a key point that Mache makes, maybe you can make a special podcast about the loss of melody, not only in contemporary classical music, but also in popular genres. Hip-hop, techno, EDM are derivatives of minimalism. There is a horrible tendency today. People do not listen to the music and melody nowadays. They consume the beat. Let me read that last part. People do not listen to the music and melody nowadays. They consume the beat. Well, this really got me. I have to say, Mache's idea that melody has disappeared from a lot of popular music is something that I've noticed too. Now, before you go on and say you guys are just, you know, some old guys disgusted by popular music of the day, just like everybody is, somebody who grew up with Frank Sinatra or whatever will say that the Beatles sucked, the Rolling Stones sucked, you know, this rock and roll stuff. And people who grew up with classic rock will say that 1980s pop was a cheap, industrialized, commercialized crap, and so on and so on. We all do this. We all tend, I will admit, to prefer the popular music of our time, at least to some extent. Some of us rebel against it. 
many rebel against it, but most people seem to think the pop music of their time is the great pop music and that a lot of stuff after it was just cheap and lacking in musicality and overly commercialized or too bombastic or whatever. So there is a part of that that may be true. But first, let me say that Maché, at least from his pictures, looks a lot younger than me. So this is not merely a question of our age. And it's clearly not a question of where we live. What matters is that we've both noticed this tendency in a lot of popular music to avoid melody, and that it seems to be accepted, even preferred. My wife and younger daughter and I were in a grocery store about a week ago, and a Lionel Richie song came on, as they do often in grocery stores. I can't remember the song. But I did say to my wife, you know, Lionel Richie is underrated. And what I always liked about him is he had no fear of real melody. You can say what you want about anything else about him, but the dude could write a tune that was singable. And not just singable, had some heart to it had some depth to it. I'm pretty sure I've never, I know I never purchased a Lionel Richie album. I may have had a Commodore's album back in the day. But you can't help but notice he has a sense of melody. And as I discussed in the minimalism episode, the last one, melody is what's missing in that music almost all the time, particularly in the works of Philip Glass. And as I said in that episode, When there's no sense of melody, we lose the sense of narrative. We lose the story. We aren't drawn into the story. There's no through line. And I also, in that episode, alluded to the fact that EDM, electronic dance music, is one of the offspring of minimalism. And as Maché points out, so is techno, and to some extent hip-hop as well. Even modern pop, some of it, feels like anti-melodic in a certain way. Now, to counter this, I was discussing this with my son, Emmanuel, who's 22 and who's a musician, who's a songwriter. But he claims, well, it's not fair to just attack the whole EDM genre as being non-melodic. And I told him, okay, send me some stuff that proves that I'm wrong. He hasn't done that yet. I'm giving him to the end of the week. What I've heard, what he's played for me and what I've heard has no sense of melody, no sense of song, no sense of real development other than the same kind of mathematical, precise development you hear in minimalism, particularly in Philip Glass, where you hear a rhythm over and over, and then something is added to it. In the case of EDM, it's like different hi-hat, different synth pad, and then things are subtracted, so you just end up with that synth pad. I could demonstrate this. Maybe I will in the background as I'm talking. Now, my claim isn't that it lacks skill. It does take plenty of skill in the sense that you have to master aspects of production using a digital audio workstation, using loop processors like Ableton Live and various other things like that, and mixing and editing. These are all skills. They're in part musical skills. I would claim they're more production skills than musical skills. But let's leave that aside. My main point here is that there is virtually no melodic development in EDM, techno, and some hip-hop. Hip-hop is a little different in that, for me, it's so clearly about the poetry, if, in fact, the rapper is poetic. Some of it is garbage like everything else. But when the words are powerful, they create, even without melody, a sense of story, a sense of drama. And then, of course, there's plenty of hip-hop where there's melody in the chorus or the hook. A great example of this is Empire State of Mind by Jay-Z. Actually, not written by Jay-Z. I'm looking it up. It was written by Angela Hunt and Janet Sewell Yulipik as a tribute to their hometown, New York City. Now, this is a great song. And of course, the, the hook, the chorus, and the bridge are sung by Alicia Keys beautifully. And it's a powerful song. The narrative unfolds in the rapt part, and then in the classic way of great songs, the chorus takes us home, gives us the theme. So I'm going to take a little bit of a pass on hip-hop 
in general because even without the sung choruses or sung bridges, there is often a sense of storyline because of the words. There are great tunes in any genre from any period, and I don't mean to imply that nobody is writing great melodies or telling great stories with music today. What I keep glomming onto about what Maché says is that people do not listen to music and melody nowadays. They consume the beat. And this, I believe, is true, particularly for younger generations. They barely know what melody is. Real melody. Melody that gets inside you and tells a story that couldn't be told any other way. What I hear in most pop music today across multiple genres are riffs, not melodies. And there's a difference. A riff is just a pre-melodic series of notes, like... And a riff is usually composed of maybe two or three notes at most. I changed the chords slightly underneath it, but I used the same three notes. Now, there's a long history of this, even in jazz, of doing things like this. And you you can make the argument, well, okay, some of your favorite jazz musicians, maybe somebody like Cannonball Adderley or even Coltrane, would write simple riffs, something like... I believe is Blue Train or something, and four notes, or something like Bessie's Blues. So that's based on a single three-note riff that then moves up back down. First of all, that melody does develop by going instead of, then it adds the turnaround at the end of the blues. Now that's a very simple melody, purposely, by the way. It comes in a context of an album with some very involved melodies, and Coltrane perfectly places it so he has this super simple melody as contrast. But more than that, even something simpler like the previous blues I played, I think, as I said, it was Coltrane's Blues or Blue Train. Blue Train. The riff is a setup, because what comes after it? The solos, which are hyper-melodic, which develop with complex relations between different motive motifs and so on. So Coltrane would never play a tune and just keep doing that. Now, somebody might sample Coltrane doing that, and they they would just keep doing that part, right? That's not melody. That's not melodic development. There is no melodic development if all you do is this. Okay, you're already tired of that. I have a headache from doing it four times. So that kind of melody is not melody. It's just a riff, a little sub-melody, pre-melody. It's the beginning of the possibility of melody. But if it doesn't develop, there's no story being told. And I think this gets to the heart of what Maché was talking about. And if you grow up listening to music without melody, without a sense of melodic development, then you come to accept it as the norm. And then when somebody does something truly, authentically melodic, it seems like what? They're old-fashioned? Cliché? Too complex? Because real melody does have a complex 
complexity to it. It has a sense of building. It has a beginning, middle, and an end. It's a drama. It's a mini-drama. Songs are mini-dramas. Larger compositional works, like symphonies, are bigger dramas. But they work primarily using the same principles of developing an idea. Songs are a miniature version of this. I'd like to read another one of Maché's comments. Please do not misunderstand me. I have a huge respect for American music. There are so many fantastic composers whose music I really appreciate. But there is a lot of garbage, like Philip Glass and John Cage. The same for Europe. German serialism, or French music concrete, were the most stupid developments in the Western music, Western European classical music after 1950. Look what happened to the powerful European music in the period from the Renaissance until World War II. We are nothing now. We have nothing to say apart from absurd atonal music composed for a small group of musicologists. And then, such genres as techno, hip-hop, rap, which you can hear everywhere here. Pure decadence. Yes, I see what is going on in the U.S. I do not think I need to comment. Okay, there's quite a bit to unpack here as well. Let me start with this idea of the stupid developments in Western European classical music after 1950. Look what happened to the powerful European music in the period from the Renaissance until World War II. We are nothing now. This period he refers to, the Renaissance to World War II, is spot on. This is maybe the greatest period of musical development in history. Arguably, what happened here in America is just as great from, say, the late 19th century until the end of the 20th century, perhaps. We'll get back to that in part two of this podcast. Because in many ways, as European music was dying American music was on the ascent. But let's start with the European music equation. That period he refers to gave us composers like Palestrina in the Renaissance, Bach in the High Baroque, of course, the great classical period of Mozart, Haydn, Beethoven, the early Romanticists like Schubert and Schumann, on through the later Romanticists, Wagner, Brahms, and then to the various non-German schools like French Impressionism, Debussy and Ravel, Stravinsky in the Russian school, Tchaikovsky before that, Bartok, and many more I'm forgetting at the moment. What happened in that period of music was astounding. Just simply like mind-blowing how many great composers, culminating perhaps with Beethoven as the greatest, and Bach right there, the greatest musician of all time. When you look at this collectively, you just gasp at how much great music was written in this period. It just seems like an endless stream of brilliant music. And to some extent, it was really led by Germans, by the great German composers, Bach, Beethoven, Brahms. You can make an argument that that school in itself drove the narrative of European music overall. Even though French Impressionism was distinctly its own thing, and the Russian school was distinctly its own thing. The narrative was driven, the concept of how we compose music came out of German music, and really, we can break it down further to two composers, Bach and Beethoven. This drove everything, and drove every composer nuts because they set such a ridiculously high standard for the rest of us, for the rest of history, it seems, to meet. And then something happened. It started to die. Perhaps it started to die, as Brahms noticed in the late 19th century. What's interesting is that Vienna, which is where Maché lives, I believe, Vienna is the center of all this musical activity. Now, Bach was not in Vienna. I think he was ended up in Leipzig. But the others, 
Mozart, hailed from Salzburg, ended up in Vienna because that was where you had to make your name in the world of music. Same with Haydn, who hailed from, I don't remember, and Beethoven, who hailed from Bonn, made the pilgrimage to Vienna, hated it, always wanted to leave, never left. Same with Brahms. He also hated it. He came from Hamburg and ended up there and could never get out of there. I mean, he took trips. but So Vienna was like New York City of not so much now, but the Jazz Age. That was the place you went in America to make your name after a certain point, which I think is past. But what Brahms noticed in the 1890s, 1880s, was that Vienna and the great musical culture that went back to Bach in his mind and even before, the great German musical culture was now on its way out, was in decline. That it was becoming cynical, consuming itself with its worst tendencies. And Brahms did actually see the connection between this and anti-Semitism, which was also rearing its ugly head around this time in Vienna and elsewhere, obviously. But he saw himself in some ways as the swan song to a great tradition and that it was going to come to an end and that it was going to be ugly and that it would not only just burn itself out, but would create a cultural and moral disaster. Of course, we ended up with Hitler and the Second World War, and a lot of people, including Brahms, saw this coming, saw the death of a great culture, a great musical culture, and a great tradition of enlightenment that stretched back at least into the 18th century. So what happened as the great European tradition declined particularly the great German tradition. We, in essence, lost melody. Now, I'm not going to say that all serialism is junk. Not even serialism, but atonality. I actually really like quite a few of the early works of Schoenberg, the atonal works, the pre-serial works, the works of his students, Berg and Webern. I think when Schoenberg came up with his his 12-tone technique, it was, in his mind, a way to rescue German music from oblivion. That atonality was, in effect, anarchy. And you needed a system of musical government, so to speak, to replace the end of tonality. I think, in essence, he was wrong in his solution, but I understand where he was coming from. And I also think some of the efforts in that tradition, like Berg's violin concerto and some of Webern's music, and even some of Schoenberg's, has a certain attraction to it. It still has a connection to that great German tradition. And like I said, the the atonal works of the early 20th century, some of the piano works, like the Sex Klein Klavierstück and the, excuse my German, and the three piano pieces before that, really quite beautiful. They're atonal, but they have a sense of melody and drama somehow. It's because I think they connect so closely with late Romanticism that one can hear, even if not a pure singable melody, a sense of striving for it. So that happened. That musical culture, in a larger sense, died.
But what does it mean to say that this musical culture, this great European musical culture, died, consumed itself, gave in to its worst tendencies, of, and died, in, a, in essence, from the weight of those worst tendencies, made it collapse? One could, I could, draw a line through that particular history and make the case from a purely musical standpoint about what happened, even technically. This is not a music theory podcast, so I'm only going to touch on that. But I'm going to touch on the most important, the fundamental issue from a musical standpoint that led to the decline of the great European tradition. In effect, it could be summed up by saying, the European, the great European tradition forgot how to sing. Now, of course, that's absurd on its surface. I'm talking, of course, specifically of what's called the classical music tradition, European art music. They forgot how to sing. They became so consumed with development, with complexity. Wagner can be blamed for a lot of this. He had this idea, which I've spoken of before, of endless melody, where you take the Beethovenian idea of a motif being the basis of composition. In, in Beethoven's case, this really came to the forefront maybe first or prominently in the Eroica Symphony. Where he bases that whole movement on that theme and to some extent the rest of the symphony. And I spoke in the last episode of Beethoven's Fifth of, of being even a more extreme version of that idea. But the extraordinary thing about his music is that even as he used the smallest little elements of motif to build his compositions, he never lost the sense of singing. He never lost the sense of song itself. I don't think most lay listeners understand this when they listen to Beethoven. I don't think they understand what's really going on under the surface. What they can relate to is the sense of drive, the sense of narrative momentum, the sense of songfulness that is there all the time. It never leaves, even in these most intense moments of the Ninth Symphony and the Seventh Symphony and the Fifth and the Third, the odd ones. After all, after three incredibly complex movements based on small motifs that still added up to a sense of song, what does Beethoven end his final symphony with? The Ode to Joy, a great song, a simple song. Beethoven, simply put, never lost the sense of song. And I think what happened is composers like Wagner looked at what Beethoven gave them, the technique of musical development through small motifs. And they ran with it. And along the way, in the Wagnerian school, the Liszt Wagnerian school, the Bruckneriian school of musical thought, they became so obsessed with the motif, the endless melody, that they lost a sense of the contained song. The opening... The leitmotif of Tristan and Isolde. And then he does it again, up a third. And again... develops it further and then this great part
And he keeps going. The music always gives me the chills. It's gorgeous. One of the most beautiful pieces of music ever written. Devastating. I don't think there's a better portrayal of loss, loneliness, than that prelude to Tristan. I'm not going to say that Wagner wasn't a great composer, in spite of all of his his horrible anti-Semitism and racism. I'm not erasing him because of his stupid philosophy. But as much as I love elements of that opera and others, as much as I do recognize he has this incredible sense of what he said, endless melody, as you hear in that open, in that prelude and elsewhere in the opera, I also feel that that at some point in his quest for this new paradigm for music, a kind of manifesto of where music had to go after Beethoven, that he lost sight of the roots of what makes even great complex music relatable, and that is melody, the song. A part of me, as I played that opening to Tristan, thinks, I must be wrong about this. Those melodies, that sense of musical development is so searingly beautiful that how could he, Wagner, as awful a person as he may have been, led to the decline of Western European art music? It's not just him. It's an overall sense of losing touch with the fundamentals. After all, if you take a motif like the Tristan, the primary light motif of Tristan. Now, let me just, as an experiment, improvise on this, and I'm going to try purposely to avoid developing it in such a way that refers to song. I don't know if this is possible. Okay, I think it is possible. And in fact, I think what I did there was an encapsulation of the problem. Now, you probably heard the motif all over the place, how it developed. But at a certain point, it just seemed to be more about the motif, the musical technique, less about a narrative structure, a narrative moving forward it becomes, well, self-indulgent. And that's what one hears in some of this late romantic music, in Wagner's operas, in Bruckner, and in far less talented composers. Now you can see where by what you just heard me do there, how this leads to atonality, the breakdown of not only a tonal structure, but more importantly, that sense of songfulness. And somebody like Brahms, who really did admire Wagner, saw this desperate attempt to make everything inward, autobiographical, about the deepest tendrils of one's soul, regardless of its ability to connect to other humans. Almost a psychosis in music, that that could destroy all those things, that sense could destroy the music itself from the weight of all that excess, almost, of inward emotion to the point where it becomes incomprehensible in much atonal music and serial music and beyond. (laughs) 
Now, believe it or not, I'm, when I'm doing stuff like that, which probably annoys the hell out of you, most of you, I'm using actual musical techniques. I'm not just pounding my fingers wherever they might go. So it does take skill, and I will forever admire great serialists like Schoenberg and Berg and Webern for their skill, and as I said, I even admire some of their music as music. But I think it, by leaving behind, by taking what Wagner taught them and running with it, in a sense, running with it to its extreme, the extremes of expressionism, they lost the tune. They forgot how to sing, even as they wrote operas like Wozzeck and uh, Lulu and by Berg and Moses und Aaron by Schoenberg and so on. One definitely hears the connection to late Romanticism, even in those serial works, but not in a good way. (laughs) The loss of tune seemed to be permanent. It seemed like Well, this is where we've arrived in human history. Vienna, the great German culture, has collapsed. We can no longer sing. Now, I want to talk about this concept of Wagner's called endless melody. That was his term. What is it exactly? In playing the prelude of Tristan, I perhaps gave a sense of what that is. His idea... That, that whole thing. There's that motif, the light motif, as he would call it. And his concept was that using light motifs in these long involved operas, you would have these long stretches of unresolved melody, melody that just kept developing eternally almost. And in the case of some of those operas, it feels that way. But here's the thing. Wagner's idea of endless melody is a trap. It's a trap because endless melody actually ends up being the end of melody for this reason. Melody is connected to song, song forms. But a song is a contained melody, with or without lyrics. You can have a song, as many great jazz musicians have demonstrated, without words. Felix Mendelssohn wrote a series of piano pieces called Songs Without Words. But that could describe a whole history of jazz, instrumental jazz. You could argue that most of the greatest jazz compositions have been songs without words. But the song itself is a contained form. It's a melody 
that is contained within a structure that you can follow. Now, what happens with endless melody? Wagner saw that the contained melody, the song form, that predominated in opera really up to him, he saw this as a limitation, that it was holding opera back, that it was holding the Gesamtkunstwerk. Again, pardon my German, which is the total, the all-encompassing work of art back that you couldn't you couldn't use the song because it stopped the drama it wasn't an organic dramatic statement you know you had recitative the kind of half spoken half sung elements you'll hear in operas like by mozart and then you had a song similar to what you hear in american musicals where you have people talking, and then you could feel like, okay, here comes a goddamn song. You know it's coming because it's being set up. And the same is true of opera. And the whole point was use the drama to get to the songs, which is the part that people really love. That's what they're going to go home whistling and singing and put on their playlists in 18th century Vienna. So Wagner, rightly in a way, saw that this was limiting the organic development of the drama. All well and good. I understand where he's coming from. I once wrote what I called at the time a pop opera in 1990 with a librettist, a playwright. I wanted to do something along these lines, have light motifs and use them to help drive the drama. But more to the point, I didn't want people to talk ever in my pop opera. So what I did was I took the librettists, the playwrights, words and set them to music, even if they weren't in any kind of verse, any kind of rhythmic poetry, which most of his words weren't. I ended up writing songs to balance that out. But what I did was I used a series of motifs and set his words to these. And it was sometimes awkward and sometimes not. But the point was to not stop the drama, to have the drama, the story, the narrative lead the music rather than the other way around. I think Wagner was, he was right in the sense that story, narrative, is always a more important structural element, not more important, but easier to follow as a structural element than music. People do hear melody in instrumental music and they follow it as the narrative without really knowing that they're following it as the narrative. But when you bring in an actual human story with characters and a plot and acts, beginnings, middles, and ends, that story, that dramatic story is going to supersede the musical story. And so what Wagner did was he'd write his stories first, and then probably along the way putting leitmotifs to certain characters or certain dramatic points, and then he'd write the operas. I think that's what he did. I read a biography about him a long time ago. So he understood correctly that the drama was leading the music. Again, I think he was spot on with this. However, his concept of endless melody in combination with what one might call his weirdly mythological Norse themes and strange Aryan anti-Semitic concepts led to the following. The endless melody. Well, what is endless? Ultimately, it's a road to nowhere. It never ends. It's not contained. It strives for eternity and ends up in the abyss. So by breaking up the song, by blowing it up, so to speak, in favor of something larger to make a dramatic point, he in effect led us to the abyss. You could perhaps see in this improvisation how we get to the abyss from something truly powerful like the Tristan prelude to a kind of end of melody, an end of containment. After all, even drama has to be contained. It has to have form. It has to have beginning, middle, and end. It has to have identifiable themes 
and characters that we can relate to. But if a melody just drifts on and on forever, it's lost its power to tell a story, in effect. I spoke of the power of that Tristan prelude, and you should really listen to it if you haven't. But what I haven't spoken about is the rest of the opera, the other four hours or whatever it is. I can't get through it. There are some remarkable set pieces, some remarkable moments that are just amazing. But as a whole, it falls apart to me, as does much of his music. The ironic thing is that Wagner is at his very best when he is contained. An overture, after all, is a kind of contained, instrumental introduction to a drama. It has to come to an end. It has to have a strong form to set up the drama. So it works beautifully. And again, there's some beautiful moments in the opera itself, but the lack of containment in it ultimately is boring. There's a story of Tchaikovsky, the great Russian romanticist, going to hear it and getting a headache or falling asleep. I think he got the headache and then he fell asleep. Or maybe he fell asleep and woke up with a headache. What I think he found was that there was much beautiful music here, but in the end, a just drifting nothingness. Actually, Tchaikovsky himself is a useful contrast to Wagner. Nobody ever accused Tchaikovsky of not being able to write a tune, quite the opposite. Some don't take him seriously as a composer because he was such a great songwriter. But if you listen to his bigger, later works, like the fourth through sixth symphonies, he demonstrates a far better balance between a sprawling autobiographical work, but one that is still contained, still has A, recognizable tunes, but a form that is manageable proving that melody was not quite dead yet in the classical tradition. Unfortunately, as Johannes Brahms feared and others have subsequently noted, Wagner's ideology won out in the end. He was powerful enough in the best of his work that his side won, the anti-melody guys the anti-song guys. Sure, there were feints towards tunes again in Stravinsky and the Russian school and in the French school, but in the end, the Wagner camp won and they killed melody in the classical tradition with their victory. And then, while that was happening, American music was reasserting melody in the strongest and most original terms the American Revolution in music, the rise and fall of the American melody. That will be the subject of part two. Stay tuned for that. 